So I have in my hand denim and leather, the rise and fall of the new wave of British heavy metal, which is a genre I first heard of, Michael Hand, because John Harris told me about it. Um, did you read his book? His brother Howell did the illustrations about rock and roll. Hail, hail, rock and roll. And there was a bit about Nawabam. And at the time, I'd never heard of it. Since then, I now know what it is. So when I saw that there was a book about the new wave of British heavy metal, uh, which was a genre made up by a guy called Jeff Barton uh, in the music press. Um, uh, that's not actually true. I'm going to have to correct you on your homework there, Johnny. It was invented by Alan Lewis, the, embed- the editor of Sounds, who coined the phrase in the subheading of a Jeff Barton gig review from the music machine in london in may 1979 alan lewis coined nwabam not jeff barton you see in all seriousness i did do that on purpose because jeff barton is attributed uh, because it, it had his byline but as you know from editing things sometimes the editors and the subs do not get credit for what they do. So if, if anything, the Wobbum is a sub-editor creation. He was a man with a very sharp eye for scenes and for what was coming up. I mean, there are quite a lot of people talk about him in my book. Sadly, I mean, he's died now. He was very ill while I was writing the book, so I was unable to get in contact with him. But plenty of journalists talk about how unerring he was in seeing what was happening, how he shifted sounds over to punk very early. I mean, Enemy always gets the credit that sounds was there very early with people like John Ingham and John Savage as well. And then he espied the new wave of British heavy metal. He knew that there was something happening at a street level and realised that the enemy and the Melody Maker and Record Mirror were never going to get on top of it. And here was a gap for sounds. He sent Jeff Barton out to fill that gap. And I'm so young and also very sad at the same time that I never got to hold sounds in my hand. I imagine that you still have ink somewhere deep within your pores that rubbed off sounds. Well, I, I grew up on the weekly music press. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine now that it was such a rite of passage for so many kids um, in the 70s and 80s. You know, Wednesday lunchtime, once I left school and was doing, I was working in Boots here before going to university, and Wednesday lunchtime was the highlight of the week because we had Smiths next door. Um, I bolted down my sandwich in the canteen that would take about seven minutes. And I would spend 52 minutes uh, reading sounds, Melody Maker and NME, never buying them, of course. And people always talk about the circulation figures for those titles, uh, which are impressive. But, I mean, imagine how many more people read them in the shops. In those days, you could stand reading a a magazine in a shop for an hour. Um, No assistant would come up and say, are you going to buy that? Sometimes you'd be crouching on the floor reading these music papers. But yeah, I mean, they were the main means of of the musical conversation at that point. There was, of course, no internet. So the only way you could find out any news was by buying one of the weekly music papers. Uh, The only way you knew what was happening, there were no blogs. They were... They were a lifeline. They were like a message board to teenagers, the music press, in, in the same way that, say, the, the singles racks in Smiths and Boots were, you know, that changed every week and how have I the top 40 or the top 75. And they were like a teenage semaphore. This is what the culture is doing right now. David Hepworth has famously talked about uh, how he wants to, or someone should write a book on class and music. Um, But I think the current political uh, exegesis is because we don't have musical tribes anymore. Radio 2 had their 90s day last week. 
the grandpa, the son and the grandson all go to the same, I don't know, Foo Fighters gig together because Rock now is in retirement age. The enemy is 70 years old as a brand now. So I know that you've blamed Britpop for Brexit. But could you blame no, the no, right... No, I, I did not blame Britpop for Brexit. They, that's a case of reading the headline. And the headline wasn't even a statement. The headline was, did Britpop cause Brexit or something like this. Clearly, Britpop... I'm sorry, I know this is not the subject of the interview, but I need to stamp on this. Quite right. Clearly, Britpop did not cause Brexit. But Britpop, I think, enabled and encouraged some of the cultural attitudes that later fed into Brexit. Yeah, equally, I, equally, I sometimes argue that Britpop would have been impossible without Bobby Robson changing to the sweeper system. In which the is true. Cup, Completely which, true. Which, but again, is, is grotesque exaggeration, but with a kernel of truth about it, I think. And that's what the best journalism is. At this point, can I uh, apologise, firstly, for, for misquoting you, which is, is not good. But I used to go to the library at school and I would take out the film and music section and read it in the common room because I had a double free period on Friday morning. So I would read John Harris, Laura Barton, Alexis Petridis uh, and Paul Morley. So I just wanted to ask you who edited uh, that section. Did you ever edit Paul Morley or was part of the fun not to edit him? Uh, well, Paul Morley wasn't a regular writer. He was an occasional writer. Yeah, Paul Morley has an idiosyncratic style that you either like or you do not like. Um, I personally do not have terribly strong feelings about it. But, you know, we, we had a bunch of, of other writers. And also at Film and Music, um, I was very much trying to bring new writers through because um, it seemed to me that music writing in the UK at that point was entirely dominated by uh, the children of EMAP, the people who'd come through Q, all of whom I, I cast no shade on them. Um, very good writers. I always enjoyed reading Q. I always enjoyed their writing. Uh, but there was basically a generation that had been in place in music writing since basically the start of the 90s and in some cases earlier. Now, by the time I started editing film and music in 2006, and it did feel like quite an imperative to start uh, finding some people who were not exactly like me. That, that was a process I began, and which has been con continued apace uh, since I left The Guardian in 2017. But editing film and music was such a dream of a job. When I left university and went into journalism, the single job I wanted was to edit The Guardian's Friday R section, uh, which I did. And having achieved that, my sole ambition in life, everything since has been a dark pit of despair and emptiness. And well, hopefully seeing Queen's Park Rangers leap up to the promised land of a £150 million bonus for finishing last in the top division. Well, well Queen's Park Rangers are a significant contributor to the despair and emptiness um, that is, is life. Um, no, film and music was an incredible time. Um, I loved reading it. I think you had, it was... you had the tone right and also shooting the sacred cows. I'll always remember John Harris's piece on saying Coldplay's lyrics were awful. And apparently Chris Martin read it and acknowledged that. Well, it was, it's funny the things that get picked up. We once ran a feature um, about uh, the classic albums that musicians think are terrible, which got picked up all around the world. I couldn't believe it. It seemed like a fairly obvious idea to me. And there was, I remember reading one piece in an American magazine saying, you know, commissioning editors all around the world are being kicked by their bosses for not thinking of this idea first. Thinking, wow, well, I'm, I'm pleased with that. But it was, it was always satisfying when you would see um, 
uh, when you would see other titles paying homage to what you did. At Christmas in film and music one year, I had the idea of doing not writers picking their favourite records of the year or their favourite gigs of the year, but their favourite musical moment of the year to try and make things personal. Um, I remember John Harris writing about bursting into tears at a set of traffic lights in midsummer listening to Slade in his car when he was working on a feature about Slade for Mojo. And we had things like you know, Laura Barton writing about having a miscarriage. I, I wrote about suffering from anxiety. So we, we did things, tried to do things differently. And then the following year, after the first time we did this, the Times ran exactly the same feature or their music writers on the musical moments. And, you know, I never really felt that resentful about that. I thought, yeah, good. Uh, if my ideas are that good and people are copying them, then that is fantastic. But one, one of the things that I did like in film and music was... And of course, we didn't revolutionise music coverage. We're a weekly music, music section, national newspaper. But Laura Barton's column, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, was one of the first times, and certainly the first time over an extended period, that a writer was allowed to write about what music meant to them. And I think music writers get so tied up in the minutiae of, you know, B-sides and who produced what and what's carved in the runoff groove that they forget the single most important thing about music is how it makes you feel. And, you know, that was Laura's task to write about that single thing. And so I'm so proud of that column. I think it, I think that column made a difference. Here, here. And it's given Laura um, the space to write. She's got a book. Is it called Broken Music? It's, it keeps being uh, pushed. She, she's got a book about the relationship between music and sadness coming yeah. out next year. Should have come out this year. It got pushed back. I think it was should have originally come out last year, yeah. but they put it back as the pandemic. Um, and I keep saying to her, "This book should have already been out." <laughs> it's the it's the Chinese democracy of music press. It's an interesting thing in music books at the moment um, that the current form, the current fashionable form, is the music writer's memoir with a twist. This spring got Ian Winwood's book Bodies, which is about um, mental health and um, duty of care in the music industry, but is also a memoir of his own addiction and music journalism. There's Jude's book um, about you know, how music shapes us. We've got Ted Kessler's book about being the last age of Q coming mm-hmm. up. And it's kind of, well, this is a rush of things. And that, that's why I think Laura's book should have been out earlier. I just wish it should have been out earlier. Also, because she has not shown me a proof and I'm desperate to read it. Yes, you're going to, and of course, Broken Greek by Pete Perfides and Yes, which kind of started the whole yeah. thing. Blazing the, 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 the Trail. As always, yeah, I, well, I, I had an idea about that about four or five years ago and tried to start work on it, which was going to be a memoir uh, with chapters about particular songs that have had an impact in my life. You know, not just me writing about them, but also interviewing the writers or performers. And I did a sample chapter, which was talking to Billy Bragg about The Saturday Boy, um, a memoir of my own time being a bullied kid at school in Slough, and talking to Billy Bragg about his teenage years and about writing that song. And um, I thought it was a really good chapter, but the problem was uh, no other songwriters were really very interested in taking part uh, mm. or performers. You know, I wanted to talk to Olivia Newton-John about um, one of the Grease singles, which were the first records I bought. And eventually was told, yeah, you can have 20 minutes. No, 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 20 minutes on the phone isn't really going to do this for me. I wanted to talk to Brian Adams about uh, I'd Do It For You. Not a great favourite song of mine, uh, but... While Brian Adams was at number one with I Do It For You, uh, went into the charts towards the end of my final year at university. So while I was number one, I variously 
got acceptance to a postgrad journalism course, got a first from Leeds, finished university, found out my dad was dying, got dumped by my girlfriend, who was the first big love of my life, uh, then dropped out of journalism school, um, all while one record was number one, <laughs> you know. That's completely good. changed my life. Um, but then, to be fair, maybe I wouldn't have got anything out of Brian Adams anyway, because I interviewed him the other week for The Independent, and I, I told him that story. And then said, so how did your life change? I said, well, no, not really. Oh, okay. You were number one forever. Yeah, as I thought off on the road, I wasn't really aware of it very much. Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Probably a good job. We never did this interview in the first place then. On that, the reception of music, I, I did classics at Edinburgh. One of the things that I was interested in is how a text from 2,000 years ago could affect a world that they couldn't even have imagined um, oh. 2,000 years on. So I'm pleased that we're now seeing a kind of reception uh, model of literature and the first person series of, of music journalism. And we had Ian Winwood in uh, for the first music library interview. I should say, Michael Hand, that you are the third after Mark Burroughs whom you may know very well because you were mm, working in the same the building garden, as him. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and Ian Winwood was the first. I'm talking to 78 writers about their books. Denim and Leather is the new one. You mention Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Who co-wrote that song with Brian Adams? Michael Kamen and Robert John Mutlanger. Very good. Michael Kamen, I think, is, is has he passed away? Quite I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. a few years ago, five or six years ago. Yes, uh, but Mutt Lang is very much still alive and with us. And he seems to, I looked at his catalogue, he seems to only work when he wants now. Where does he, I don't know if he lives on an island, but he's enjoying a kind of semi-retirement. He was always a recluse. I mean, you would look long and hard for Mutt Langer interviews. I, I, I think he did some early in his career, but for decades, no. But you know, he has no need to, does he? I mean, he, he produced Back in Black, Pyromania, Hysteria, Come On Over, and a score of other huge, uh, Waking Up in the Names of Brian Adams, a huge, a score of huge, huge records. It's always interesting when you talk to people about Mutt Langer. Um, I mean, even Shania Twain, talks with awe about him. Uh, do you know the story of their marriage breaking up? Robert John Mutt Langer left Shania Twain for Shania's best friend, and then Shania, for comfort, turned to her old best friend's ex-husband. I'd love to and, read that book. Or and they're now married to each other. Yeah. I started asking her when I interviewed her a bit about Mutt Langer, and, you know, honestly, th- I was a bit cautious, because yeah, who really wants to talk about their ex-husband, especially in terms of, what did your ex-husband do for your career? But you know, she talked in awe about him and, and about writing Man, I Feel Like a Woman, um, about how that particular phrase, which is, of course, the big hook of the song, came up. And they'd written the song and Mark was saying, it, just, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It needs something else. It needs a hook. It needs a spoken hook. And the rhythm has to be duh, 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 duh. That is what will work with the song. And that, that's how they came up with, with Man, I Feel Like a Woman. And when you talk to the members of Def Leppard, you know, writing, writing songs with Mutt Lang was like Nicano. Um, it was bolting things together. It, on Hysteria, especially, to Joe Elliott and Phil Conte, it's, it's not writing songs. You don't sit down and write a song from start to finish. You write bits. Um, you go to Mutt and say, here's the chorus. And Mutt say, no, that's not a chorus. That's, that's before a verse. 
Um, the aim is to ensure that you know every single thing is made better and better and better, and so that the chorus, when it comes, is absolutely undeniable. But you know, it's finding the bits that work together and the, and then bolting them in place. I mean, a, a very different way of songwriting to what anyone else was doing, certainly in the eighties. Yeah, but that's the way to go now, where you have the hook guy and the track guy and mm. the hook, the top mm. liner. Did you read that piece? I don't know where it was from, but it was quite a technical piece, and it was about how the engineer working with Mutt Lang would painstakingly go into every individual note and finesse it so that it's every song is completely maximal. And that's why something like Hysteria or Come On Over, the album with 11 singles, that sounds unlike anything else. Yeah, I mean, it must be an incredibly labour-intensive way to work for everyone. I wonder if maybe in these days the Mutt Langer way of working is just too expensive for major labels. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, you require a long time in the studio. You require a lot of expertise. Well, that's why it's digital stuff. I mean, a lot of what Mutt Langer did, shifting things around, was basically, you know, prefiguring digital recording, wasn't it? Yeah. He is a genius, and um, there are very few to touch him, and his PRS checks still roll in, not least because of ACDC. There's a podcast called Hit Parade. The great Chris Malamphy produces it. Yeah. And he's got something called the ACDC Rule, which is the... Yes, I, I've listened to that edition. Yes. The, the, your, your biggest selling album will not be your number one. Your first number one album will always be the one after your biggest selling album. But I've got to say, I mean, much as I, I love Chris, I, I didn't strike me as a terribly original rule, that one, because we noticed it. I remember yeah, 20 years ago, whatever it was, going to see Pulp... Um, and they're headlining Finsbury Park, their biggest gig. But off the back is the, of This Is Hardcore, because obviously common people, the tour for common people have been booked before the album was out, so they're still playing theatres. And the demand came for the for the huge gigs on This Is Hardcore, an album that was not designed to be played to 50,000 people nope. at Finsbury Park. No, nope. what a difficult album. When the lead single is about not putting the aged in a home. Um, and But I, I talked to Mark Burrows, and he said that the Manics um, with Know Your Enemy did a similar thing. They knew where they were heading, but they didn't want to head there. So they immediately, they may have quashed expectations. But looking at music, and what I enjoyed doing last night was, and I didn't read all of it, because there is, I think, 89 pages of your work on the Guardian's website. So I flicked at things that you've done. But before I talk about any of that, I just want to say that Available for about £1.30 is The Guardian Book of Rock and Roll, which you edited in 2008, which was based on all these great pieces on The Guardian film and music. I don't really know where to go from there, because I was going to ask you what you'd add from the last 15 years. But just talk about the process of picking and choosing. Well, that that book was actually an interesting thing to do, because I went right back through The Guardian's music archives. What I learned from it was that the things that people complain about now, they complain about then. You know, in 1963, The Guardian would be looking for a spurious excuse to report on the Beatles. So there'd be something like, Draper's Convention says suit sales are up thanks to Beatles. In the same way that now they complain about newspapers doing that with Beyonce or Kanye or whoever. So people were doing it even then. But also, a brilliant writer called Stanley Reynolds, who carved out a niche for himself at The Guardian in the first half of the 1960s, writing pop culture pieces that were certainly, I think, a cut above what was appearing in other newspapers, because they weren't filled with moral panics, they were generally inquisitive pieces. Um, He's actually married to the great Gillian Reynolds, uh, the long-time Daily Telegraph radio reviewer. Oh, wow, yeah. 
I'm, I'm not sure Stanley is still alive. I've not Googled. I don't for a while. think he is. I think I listened to Gillian on Desert Island Discs, and she's widowed. Okay. Okay. But I mean, he was, at the point I did that book, he was still alive and we had some correspondence. And he was he was so far ahead of the game. And yeah, he's a name that is rarely mentioned. I think perhaps because he moved on, he was more of a general feature writer. And of course, when you're working at The Guardian, you don't really get the chance to explore Hunter S. Thompson's style, extreme personal writing. But some of the stuff he did was absolutely fantastic. But, I mean, it's also interesting looking through old newspapers, seeing the historical misjudgments. Um, you know, um, Jeffrey Cannon, who wrote about Pops of the Garden in the late 60s, one of his best albums in 1970, uh, his, his favourite, the one that will be remembered, was the debut album by Shah Nana. Right, mm. we'll see how that prediction ages, Jeffrey. But, you know, um, but then the prediction game, especially in music, is such a dead loss. I mean, you could predict something will be a massive success, and it is, but that doesn't mean that three years later anyone will remember it. I refer you to Frampton Comes Alive. Indeed, which is the, the little engine that runs and runs and runs. When you listen to a record, what qualities do you listen out for? I like songs and tunes. Although my very favourite artists are usually very dense lyrically, like Springsteen or The Hold Steady, I like tunes more than anything. There are scores of groups who people love, and artists who people love, who I don't really go for, because I think the lyrics might be great, but I cannot hear the tunes. The go-betweens have been an eternal mystery to me. I mean, there are a handful of go-between songs I like. You know, I think you, you couldn't deny Spring Rain or Streets of Our Town or Kathleen Kane. But when I listen to a whole go-betweens album, I do always think the tunes aren't good enough. I think you should take that up with uh, Tracy Thorne's Rock and Roll Friend, because there's a... I I haven't read that book yet. It's out in paperback Mm. shortly. Um, And I wish I knew her name. I can't remember. Is it Deborah? Oh, um, uh, Lindy Morrison. Lindy Morrison, thank you. Yes, I'm sure she might have some reservations about tunes as well. But yeah, Robert Forster, who is a, a music critic now, down in mm. Australia, and the late Grant McLennan, I think. Yeah. But no, I've never, I've, I remember they had a comeback album in about 2004, and there was a track called Finding You that had a tune. But Nick Cave is someone, and I know it might be heresy, because The Guardian are very pro-Nick Cave. It, very verbose, and I, you're quite right. I want more tunes. I, I've seen Nick Cave be absolutely thrilling, and I've seen him bore me rigid at the same time. So the last time I saw him was at the O2. Um, I thought that would be a bit rubbish, but it was incredible. But then equally, you know, I got invited to a on sort of private rehearsal in a leisure centre ballroom in Hove. And so about 50 people in there in a little room with uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds going through the set they were taking out on tour. Now, that should have been incredible, but it wasn't. It uh, and me and my friend ended up leaving early going, this is so boring. I mean, it's it's not that he was um, you know, stopping songs and going, lads, we need to do this, we need to change to an A here. They were, they were playing their set right through in front of a small crowd, but for some reason it bored me and my friend both rigid. So you, you never know. Like the other day was someone was saying, you know, the war on drugs are playing in London tonight. And the other day someone was saying, oh, what the war on drugs like live? I said, well, it kind of depends on your mood. If you're in the mood, they're absolutely transporting. If you're not in the mood for long drones, you honestly, you'll be looking at your watch. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that sometimes it's you that isn't right for the show. Uh, I think we all assume that, you know, it's up to the band to entertain us. But no, it's about what we bring as well. And there's nothing wrong with not being in the mood for a gig. A gig can be bad because of you rather than because of the band. I agree. It's about entropy. I remember going to a gig, seeing Cam, 
whom I think you may know. She's a kind of Californian pop country star. I was fascinated and so entertained because of the room showing up for her. Stormzy in his Glastonbury set referred to the energy crew in the crowd. And I thought, that's it. But it's Stormzy, whom you call a family entertainer. I don't think I'll ever shake that description out. But you wrote for the... Spectator. For the spectator, the yeah. Week, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even... Well, obviously, bands will always say if the crowd are up for it, you do a better show. But I, I don't even mean at that scale. I mean, the entire crowd can still be up for it and you can not enjoy the show because you are not in the right right headspace for it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of, of my comfort zone, what I do come back to, I'm afraid, and I'm more accepting of this the older I get of my limitations. What I come back to is um, the notion that the apotheosis of human civilization was reached when some combination of four or five people armed with guitar, bass, drums, and on very rare occasions, keyboards, uh, take to a stage together. And, you know, I'm, I'm sufficiently mired in my raucous tropes that... I think the highest evolution of that form is probably four or five young men, um, specifically. I, I know all these thoughts are wrong, you know, politically wrong. And it's not like I go, no, everyone bar white men with guitar should be banned from music. It's just, I know that's a phrase I keep using at the moment. That's my cardigan music. That's what I come back to. That's what I slip on and go, oh, yeah, yeah. I know I should be wearing that designer thing, but this is just so comfortable. This mm-hmm. suits me. I can lounge around on the sofa all day like this. And, and it Easter week, as this goes out on Easter Monday, why not? Um, there are a couple of codicils to that. I read your five-star review of the Heim sisters, unfettered, irresistibly joyful music, and I found the clip of them performing The Wire. That A, they look so young. B, they're still the same group. They still perform like that, three of them in, in a line, although I think Danielle or Alana is a drummer. Uh, and then the other codicil is this piece that you wrote... Where have the grown-up hits gone? And your argument is country. Do you find yourself listening to more hipster East Nashville country now than 10 years ago when you wrote a piece about going to East Nashville? Uh, the East Nashville stuff I was writing about was garage bands. Uh, it was teenage garage bands rather than uh, anything more grown-up. Uh, I, I listen to such a, a kind of random assortment of stuff now. There's so little rhyme or reason to it. Um, I feel permanently guilty that I do not listen to enough new music. Um, permanently guilty about that. But one problem with being a music writer is saying... So I, I review shows for Spectator every couple of weeks, and I'll usually go to three or four shows to pick the two that I will end up writing about. I'm usually doing one or perhaps two features a week, and then I might also be doing an album review, though not so much these days because there are so few album reviews anywhere now. But basically, at any given time, I will have you know three or four things that I need to be listening to. Let's say you're doing a, fe- a career-spanning feature on a band, then you do actually need to listen to more than the most recent record. And so I find it genuinely very hard, unless I'm going to sacrifice everything else. I find it very hard to have the time to listen to enough music. Uh, I try to do it when I'm walking. Um, I try to go out for walks several times a week, and I put the headphones in and scroll through one of the promo streaming services and see what's new. But I, I feel perpetually behind, uh, which is perhaps one reason why in recent times I've become bloke who writes about old men reminiscing about their past, which is very much one of my um, avenues of writing it's a genre. these days. Yeah, there's a lot of past yeah. to explore. Rock music is an old age pensioner now. Cliff Richard is 80. <laughs> 
equally, I find it fun. I mean, I don't find it fun listening to talking to people whose music I absolutely despise. But there's a certain fun in interviewing people who you just do not care about because you know you don't have that kind of investment in wanting them to like you or wanting them to know how much you like their music. And you can just have a kind of enjoyable conversation with them and ask them questions that probably you know, fan type people wouldn't necessarily ask. Dave Bailey from Glass Animals. Glass Animals are not a group I like very much, but I was absolutely charmed by Dave, Dave Bailey when I spoke to him. Done a very amusing interviewee. It's, it's good to be taken out of one's comfort zone sometimes, not just to be forced to listen to different music, but just so you have a slightly different way of approaching the interview. Lest we forget, Dave Bailey has, I haven't checked this week, but had the number one song in America for the yeah, whole of March, yeah. Heat Waves, which yeah. came out well, two years ago. Heat Waves is the song that will not ever go away. I suspect that Dave Bailey is going to end up being a very rich young man. Well, yes. Uh, because well, when you stream in that volume, you are getting money coming in. Well, the, the one thing I know about Glass Animals is that they're on Wolf Tone, which is Paul Etworth's subsidiary. And the mm. fact that they've got Etworth, who is the modern-day Mutt Lang. We found him. We found the modern-day Mutt Lang. Uh, Paul Etworth <laughs> is behind Florence and um, uh, Adele and Glass Animals. Mm. Yeah, He's, he has done well for himself in recent times. Quite well. well, so have you, Michael Han. I'm looking at this book, Denim and Leather, The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, which is accompanied by da, 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 eight playlists uh, on Spotify, uh, which include details about, well, include Riot Set from the initial Monsters of Rock Festival in 1980. There's one about the Soundhouse, which is kind of Nawabam HQ. The Heavy Metal Soundhouse at the Bandwagon, which is in fact at a pub, which wasn't even called the bandwagon. Um, it was in northwest London. It was quite a schlep out for everyone. But that, that was the CBGB of, of the new wave of British heavy metal. That was the place that every band went to and that every fan went to. It was the good I mixer. Liked, the equivalent I liked of the good CBG. mixer. Yeah, I yeah, like them. It was a horrible, scrotty place, but it had an amazing sound system and it had Neil Kay, um, the DJ, who was a visionary. I'm mean, a visionary in a very peripheral way, a peripheral visionary. He saw the future, but only way off at the sides. Oh, that's wicked. That's a good picture. Yeah, I, that's yeah. not mine, I'm afraid. I've nicked that. No, that's good. And as, as I heard the other week on the Word podcast, there are so many people who attribute... There are two kinds of people, those who like Van Morrison and those who've met him. It's kind of like David Hepworth slash Mark Ellen. But it's very nice that Mark Ellen and they're the EMAP guys. Uh, and I'm hopeful to get David Hepworth and Mark Ellen on the show. And I point people towards your appearance that I listened to last night on the Word in Your Ear podcast. And what you were doing at the Guardian Film and Music is what Mark was doing at the Word magazine uh, until it had to fold 10 years ago, more or less this week. And um, I loved reading intelligent music journalism with people who I, I call it subjective objectivity. So they put themselves in and take themselves out. There's a lot of football journalism like that, like Fever Pitch. We haven't really had a music yeah. fever pitch unless you count like Ian Hunter's book, The Diary yeah. of Rock and yeah. Roll Star. But um, we, we, I guess we have to talk about this book, Denim and Leather, since you spend so long on it. Was it 150,000 words that you typed? 150,000 words, although I will let you into a trade secret, an oral history it's very time-consuming in the research, obviously. 
it was not time consuming in the writing. Um, once I had everything transcribed, I transcribed all bar, I think, three interviews myself. I have to say that since finishing the book, I find transcribing so hard now. It takes me forever now, having done all that for the book. Um, but the writing of it, um, once you've got it all transcribed, you're basically copying and pasting. Yep. So the actual book, 150,000 words, took me about three and a half weeks once I actually got down to doing it. But that's the advantage of having transcribed it all myself. I knew what was in every interview. So 10 minutes of talk is about a 1,000 words, yep. usually. Um, I did um, 300 hours of interviews, something like that. Um, I, 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 this is the problem. I, I think in terms of you know time against words all the time. But anyway. Yes, no, no, no that's very you, useful. That is very useful, because if I were to write an oral history, that's what I'd have to think about, yeah. But um, yeah, so but because I had everything in my head, you know, from from taking, you know, well, it took months to transcribe everything. It meant that I knew what the stories were. The stories of the book actually emerged as I spoke to people. Although I'd sent in a proposal with a you know, set of chapters, and here's what the story will be, it became apparent when I spoke to people. Actually, no, the the, the real story here is something slightly different. Um, the story is not about how bands went from A to B so much. Although there is, there is some of that. There are chapters about particular bands diamond head and venom because their stories illustrate particular things but mainly it's it's all about the, the social world that produced a new wave of british heavy metal so there are chapters about the music that came before and what was happening in british heavy music there's a chapter about the pub circuit that spawned them all which is mainly filled with people talking about homemade pyro disasters uh, there's a chapter about the sound house the chapter about radio one and about sounds and about Kerrang. Uh, there's a title about the role of the occult in heavy metal. There's stuff about the, the signing spree of 1980. There's a chapter, as you said, about the Monsters of Rock. Um, there's a chapter about, about the Northeast and about how Newcastle was such a hotbed for it all. Um, and a chapter about bands going to America. And then it concludes with a chapter about Pyromania by Def Leppard, which I finger as the, the culprit, the the. the that pyromania was the Professor Plum in the library with a candlestick that <laughs> did for the new wave of British heavy metal, yeah. uh, fundamentally. And also, I did need to finish the book at some point. So right there, right, pyromania, that's the end. Well, Mark Burrows was telling me that he's working on a two... He doesn't really call it two volume because the second's a continuation. But the first book is about London in the 60s using uh, Mark Feld and David Jones as kind of mm. avatars. And then in the 70s, you get what happens next. So it's, yeah. he's, he's written the first one. The second one's going to come up. And I enjoyed talking to Mark and also Ian Winwood, whose book bodies you name checked. And um, that's going to be one oh. of the books of the year. It's almost a, a book version of one of your first person commissions. Oh. And Ian oh. is a great bloke. Ian, in fact, he's a bit, he's a couple of years younger than you. So um, whereas he likes the heavy music uh, coming out of the States, you liked the heavy music coming out of, well, the speakers of Ian Watts and Tom and Daniel, is it Kenish? That's right, yeah. Well, I, I was I was a kind of pre-teen, early, early adolescent metal fan. Uh, we did not really have pop music in my home. My parents were not interested in it. My dad listened to jazz and classical. My sister didn't really care. So my exposure to pop was determined by people at school. There was nothing at home. I mean, my dad had one Eric Burden album, and there was a seven-inch of um, She's a Woman and I Feel Fine by the Beatles. Those were the only pop records in my house, other than ones I brought in. So I was utterly dependent. I was, I was malleable. 
I was shapeable, and the people I became friends with at first are like metal. Now, it should be said, metal is not necessarily actually my natural homeland. Um, I migrated to Indy after after hearing John Peel. I, I started listening to John Peel, though, because of heavy metal. I noticed whenever he presented Top of the Pops, there always seemed to be a metal band on. And being like 13, I just thought, oh, maybe the presenters pick who goes on Top of the Pops. <laughs> and so I started listening to John Peel. And the first time I listened to him, there was, I think, a session by the and he played a load of Johnny Thumbs and the Heartbreakers. It was kind of, oh, yeah, this fits in with what I've been listening to. And then I started hearing other things. I mean, uh, in that first week of listening to Peel, I heard the first Smith session. That changed everything. But metal, so I think people who really know metal know that I do not really know metal. Um, I don't have any issue with that because I don't. But because I write about metal in national newspapers and I do it, I hope, without patronising people people come to me with metal. You know, they do. You know, people say, PRs come to me and say, will you write about this band? And I'll review them, but I have to say, the, the kind of grunting, dirty vocal, modern metal where it's all grinding without melody, I find it very hard. I understand why people love Slipknot. I have enjoyed watching Slipknot shows. I understand why people like Slipknot, but dear God, that does not sound like music to me. No, um, Sonna by Rammstein. I liked that song. Mm-hmm. Had a good chorus. But yeah, a lot of it is very throaty. In fact, my partner uh, came in just as I was listening to the thing, Tigers of Pantang and Venom, one of the playlists, and she said, oh, it sounds like the darkness. Is that yeah. fair? Well, uh, clearly the darkness took a load from the album, didn't they? Clearly. You know, pa- pa- palm-muted mid-paced chug with melodies. That, that, that's new album, basically. Um it needs to be said, I've written a 450-page book about new album. A lot of new album was terrible. A lot of every genre is terrible, and we tend to remember the good stuff. But because Nwobam was never fashionable in the first place, even the good stuff doesn't really get celebrated outside the specialist metal press. So, you know, you do not see, except when I write them, uh, features about how important girls' school were, and yet they were. You know, you do not see features about Tigers and Pantang um, remembered 40 years on. And the, the, one of the reasons it's such a difficult thing to write about as, as a genre is that it isn't actually a genre. I mean, it, it was real. There were tons and tons and tons of young bands, but it was a confection. They had to be put together into a movement by Sounds magazine. But all these young bands were everywhere in the country. They were all over the place. Every town and city had one, two, three, four, five, however many bands who were considered the woman. But because they came from very disparate places culturally and geographically, no Nwobham sounded the same. So at one end you had Praying Mantis uh, from London, who sounds like an American melodic AOR rock band. They do not sound metal at all. I remember buying their single Flirting with Suicide from Revolution, in Win- Revolution Records in Winds of 50p and getting at home and just being horrified with disappointment. You know, there were vocal harmonies, there were major chords. What's <laughs> going on here? And at the other end, notionally as part of the same movement, you have Venom, who are the pioneers of extreme metal. And without Venom, there is no black metal, there is no DIY. I mean, DIY in terms of recording metal, probably. I mean, as a worldwide thing, as opposed to people just making a single because that's all they could do. Um, they brought explicit Satanism into music, although they weren't Satanists themselves. Yeah, what happened in Norway would not have happened without Venom. Mm-hmm. Extreme music around the world owes a huge debt to Venom. 
But you know, Venom were interesting not just because uh, they had such influence, but because they were not a big deal at the time. They were kind of a joke at the time. Yeah, and Diamond Head, another group who do not sell records at the time, but his influence is profound. As Lars Ulrich says, without Diamond Head, no Metallica. And Metallica are kind of the Rosetta Stone of modern metal. All the trends that you see coming through come from Metallica, but basically everything Metallica did came from Diamond Head. And if you listen to Am I Evil by Diamond Head, which is their masterpiece, despite its terrible lyrics, Am I Evil? Yes, I am. I think you could have worked harder at that, lads. Uh, am I Evil is... You hear all of Metallica's career in yes. that one song. Yes, and I, I hope that people press pause on this show and go and listen to Am I Evil? Diamond Head from Stourbridge. So the Midlands the, and the Black Country, that was where metal existed. Do you know what like Tommy Iommi thought of what was going on? Tony Iommi? Um, no. Uh, I tried to talk to Sabbath for this, but they weren't interested. And once they weren't interested, it was kind of, well, I'm not going to bother with you oh. then because you're not the central part of the story. I'm not going to keep chasing this around. But, I mean, if you, but if you listen to those Sabbath albums after Ozzy left, if it's to Heaven and Hell from 1980 and Mob Rules from 1981, they are absolutely revitalised by the new wave of British heavy metal. Neon Nights, the lead single from Heaven and Hell, is a northern single in all by name. All but name. Uh, obviously, you know, Sabbath influenced Norman and Norman influenced Sabbath in turn. And it's the same kind of thing that you saw, say, what was it, four years later when Ramones put out Too Tough to Die, an album that was clearly informed by the hardcore scene that had in turn been inspired by them. So, yeah, what goes around comes around. The heavy metal in Britain was influenced by bands one remove from the blues. I find that very interesting. So they're influenced by bands who had listened to the blues, but those have new heavy metal bands were not influenced by the blues themselves because it went so far back. I think the line is, oh, it took a Sunhouse an Ultimate Collection seven quid in a petrol station to actually discover the blues. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. It's something that happens across rock music in the late 1970s. If you listen to more or less any rock music in the early 1970s, you know those people have been listening to the blues one way or the other. I mean, even when you, yeah, even when you're listening to glam, you know, you can tell that Steve Priest and Brian Connolly had listened to the blues because, um, oh God, what's the bloody song? Blockbuster, which is also Gene Genie by, which is also Gene Genie. But that itself is basically Yardbirds riff. Um, you know, there's so much blues coming through there. Bolan is writing, you know, blues. He's writing Chuck Berry songs, basically. So you can hear the blues across the early 70s, and not just when it's, you know, someone going to squeeze my lemon until the juice runs down my leg. You can hear the blues across popular rock music. But in the second half of the 70s, it all changes. It's a generational change. And you see it very clearly in punk. Uh, in 1975 the most aggressive music being made in Britain is by pub rock bands who are playing R&B songs mm-hmm. and blues songs. You know, they have clearly listened to the blues. Lee Brillo knows the blues. With his harmonica, yeah. A year later, bands who've been inspired by Dr. Feelgood have clearly never heard the blues. You know, the Sex Pistols, I mean, well, I presume Joe Strummer had, but is then kind of disavowing any knowledge of it. But, you know, the Pistols... Large Chunks of the Clash, The Damned, those people were not listening to the blues. And exactly the same thing happens in heavy metal, I think, in 
In England, the key point is when Judas Priest release uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, which is the album where they, because when they begin, they are another blues-based heavy rock group. K.K. Downing did not like the blues, and he wanted to move them away from that. K.K. Downing, in some ways, is the kind of, he's the mastermind of British heavy metal. He's the one who invented the look, not Rob Halford. K.K. Downing invented the look. Uh, K.K. Downing was the one who wanted to move the sound away from the blues. So you see that happening with Priest and then the bands who follow Priest, the Nwobbin bands. There are some bluesy bands in Nwobbin. There's Vardis, there's Spider. Uh, But you see it in America as well with Van Halen. Um, now Van Halen's first record there, there are blues songs on there you know Ice Cream Man is a blues song and there's still blues shuffles but when there are blues shuffles they are done at light speed and the thing that people remember about the first Van Halen album is not the songs that come from the blues it's things like Running from the Running with the Devil which are completely different they sound like modern heavy metal for the first time and what happened that changes things in America too. Obviously, there's, there's more bluesy stuff in America because blues is more part, remain part of the culture for longer in America than it did in Britain. But the same thing happens on both sides of the Atlantic, which is why in the 80s, commercial hard rock has nothing to do with the blues. Commercial hard rock does not sound like Led Zeppelin anymore. And also it goes big on the visual because of music television. But did you watch music television as a teenager when um, British TV got MTV? Uh, no, I didn't see MTV in Britain until I got a cable package in the 1990s. Uh, I remember in summer 1983, my sister was going on some like long French exchange thing, and my mum was doing a master's at the time, so she was revising or doing her thesis. So me and my dad went on holiday alone, and we went to America. And I remember being wildly excited because I would see MTV. And I was reading Kerrang! about how uh, MTV has turned up about this amazing thing for heavy rock. Yeah, it's because heavy rock bands are making videos. You turn on MTV, and it's American. Of course, they like rock. And I turned it on expecting photographs to be in like, rotation every five minutes based on what I read. And I remember watching MTV, um, to the fury of my dad, sitting in a motel and going, I just want to watch MTV and see what see see what songs yeah. are going to come up. Like watching MTV for two hours, waiting for photographs to come up. And I don't think it did in that time. And we were probably like six months too late by that point. I'd just been obsessed with the notion that Def Leppard were in constant rotation on MTV. Well, they would in 1986-87, and then mm. Guns N' Roses, and then Nirvana... Uh, craft beer is popular today, and beer was what Nawabam ran on. That was the fuel. Should it not stand to reason that craft beer should fuel the explosion of the new wave of the new wave of British heavy metal, or is the infrastructure <laughs> not there anymore? Um, I think metal has changed too much. I was thinking about this this last night, and yeah, this assumption that metal is the most conservative of all genres. You know, partly based in the subject matter and partly in the fact that you know, people cleave to um, the guitar, bass and drums thing. But actually, of all genres, I think metal is the most experimental and the most revolutionary. It's definitely the one that's gone furthest from its roots. I and mean, there's no doubt about that. You generally do not get much in the way of metal bands who are going to be hip, who are trying to sound like 1979. Whereas, you know, you can be considered some radical experimentalist if you come from New York and you're trying to make a record that sounds like 1979. I, I, I do not understand mm. that. Yeah. yeah, metal has always moved forward. Um, absolutely always. Um, so, yeah, I think it really gets a bad rap. But there are bands who like 
that sound, you know, no doubt about it. But I, I, I don't think we'll ever get a, we, we won't get a stylistic revival of, of Norman because that's not the way metal works. That's a, whereas conversely, you reviewed Yard Act, The Spectator, which is kind of Marquis Smith's turned up again and the spirit is alive and well. You say Yard Act well, sounds I, like 1982, but there's a space, I, I, there's a gap. I, I quite like Yard Act, um, but what put me off was the level. I've not seen them before that show, I've managed to keep missing them. Obviously, I'd heard the record, but I was reading all these raves about them. Um, thinking, and when I was watching them, thinking, ah, you know, I don't know. I mean, I like them. I think they're enjoyable. But there was a review in the Quietus that called them the land, the landfill sprechersang. I, I believe I'm responsible for this kind of music now being described as indie sprechersang uh, from a Guardian piece about two, three years That's ago. That's right, you did. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily that it seemed calculated. I don't think they're cynical. But, you know, clearly some thought processes have gone on going that all this is happening. Um, if we can actually add hooks to this, we could be the band that makes it out of it all. Mm. But that said, as, as I put in my piece, had that said, no one goes for intoning over post-punk in the hope of filling stadiums, because that's just not going to happen. But what I really about, liked about Yard Act was the guitarist. I thought it was very inventive, but all the concentration is on the words. So, Indie Sprechtgesang. But it is extraordinary that you, you can still make records that sound exactly like something from 40 years ago in, in certain genres and be hailed for it. But in other genres... I mean, in, but look at this. Imagine if in 1982, the hottest young band, indie band of the day, sounded like the fucking Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. That's the comparison in time. You know, why? Why are we still making sounds from 40 mm. years ago? I realise that rock has a limited palette. You know, the, the, these are the instruments, these are the chords available to you. No, this, but, is, this is where I but, can plug my 20-year cycle playlist, because this is part of 78, and in 45, which is my other bit, I do top 40 charts. Mm. The one coming up this Friday is about Smash Hits Pop, which is that window between Robson and Jerome and Gareth Gates. So pop music between then. Boyzone and Take That do quite well. But the 20-year cycle is basically, if something comes out in 2000, 10 years, it gets right to the very end. It gets to the end point of what that can be. And then for the next 10 years, something changes. And then that gets to the end point of what that's supposed to be. So they bring back thing A. For instance, there is a song on a new country album called She Had Me at Heads Carolina, that is a rewrite of the Jody Messina song Heads Carolina, Tales California, which I think is the death of songwriting. But it's, the point is that because it happened 20 years ago and you can refer to something as a fan of 90s country, that's in because there are kids at 14 who weren't alive at that time. Um, um, there's definitely, I think definitely critical cycles reflect uh, when kids get into positions of power yes, in the media. Right. Um, so when I was a kid, ACDC and Black Sabbath routinely sneered at, except in Sounds and Kerrang, routinely sneered at in all music press. And that started changing probably early 90s when a bunch of people like me, who'd grown up listening to ACDC and Sabbath, started writing for places. I mean, I didn't start writing my music till the 2000s, but the point holds. Um, yeah, by the time I started editing Guardian Film and Music, it was not a controversial position to say that ACDC and Black Sabbath were two of the greatest rock bands of all time. Whereas, yeah, in 1985, that position would have been indefensible, critically. So mm. that happens. But the thing with the post-punk revival, um, 
is that it just does not seem to have stopped um, since 2000, since, uh, since the Brooklyn thing of the early yeah, 2000s. The, yeah, I guess, yeah. It, I mean, it, it didn't fade and has now come back. It has always been there and there's just one strand that's come a little more to the surface. It was our silver wedding anniversary the other day. I, um, I, gave, I gave a little speech. We had dinner with some friends. And I noticed that our marriage had lasted nearly as long as the current post-punk revival. <laughs> I mean, really. And, and that, I mean, truthfully, that, that, that's what it is. Uh, so I do not understand why um, Yarda... I, I like these groups, don't get me wrong. Um, Yarda, well, we talked about my things there, but I, I like dry cleaning a lot. I like do nothing a lot. I do not understand why those groups are revolutionary and um, a group that plays heavy metal that has evolved and has changed things over 40 years is just, oh, yeah, they're, they're just lumping. I know it's a bit different and that people don't actively sneer at metal now, but... But really, there is no mainstream critical interest in metal still, unless the bands get too big to ignore. Like the Darkness, who weren't, who were kind well, of a well, like, tribute band as well. Well, well, well like Slipknot or Metallica oh, course, or yeah. groups like that. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about well, it is talked about that there are very few bands since the Arctic Monkeys who can headline Glastonbury, uh, and indeed Taylor Swift is headlining Glastonbury this year, as well as a seventy-nine-year-old eccentric billionaire as I described McCartney. Who gets to decide the canon? Because Rolling Stone redid their top 500 albums and they obviously put what's going on at number one, even though it's not even Marvin Gaye's best album. Who decides? Who, in the same way that nowadays we have orchestras, and I play in an orchestra, we're playing Tchaikovsky and Mahler this term for this concert. They are the classics. Who is going to decide for when inevitably we get now that's what we call classic pop music? Who, is, who are the gatekeepers? Because they've oh, changed in, in the last 20 years, they've changed. I don't think there are gatekeepers anymore. Uh, magazines will continue to run best album ever features. I, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, inevitably. Uh, when you write about music for a long time, you end up writing about everything one way or another. The canon, I think it's good that the canon's changed. If you look at great album lists from the 70s and 80s, they're routinely white rock music with a couple of token soul records that crossed over. I mean, that, that's what they are because they're written by rock magazines. Um, now, even rock magazines would not dare produce a canon like that. So you notice in lists now that there, you'll, there'll be a lot more hip-hop, there'll be electronic music, there'll be jazz, there'll be more music from the that was ignored at the time from the 60s and 70s. But I, I, I don't think there ever will be a truly agreed-upon canon because I don't think any publications will have the power to make a, the notion of a canon stick. And I think people are just far too familiar with too many different forms of music now. I mean, the old canons used to be as much an educative tool. Here are 100 albums. You probably know 20 of them. Go and listen to the other yeah, 80. It's a consumer guide. But, yeah. Yeah, but you don't need to be told to listen to stuff now because stuff is thrust in front of you by the algorithms of the streaming services. The canon becomes an irrelevancy. I've been thinking about this again in, in relation to all the superannuated rock stars selling their catalogues for vast amounts of money to either the Hypnosis Fund or to Universal or to Warner or whoever. And I keep thinking, I don't know. I mean, yeah, these, this stuff still generates money now, but honestly, in 50 years' time, will the Neil Young catalogue still be generating money? Will even Bob Dylan still be generating money in 50 years' time? No. I don't know, because all the people 
who cheer about Bob Dylan, all the people who write the books about Bob Dylan and write the endless features about Bob Dylan in magazines, they will all be dead. Um, and yeah, you do get kids who go, yeah, I really love Bob Dylan. But you don't get like, yeah, oh my God, this sea of kids for Bob Dylan. That, that is not there. I mean, if you look back at pre-rock music, you know, I love golden age of American songwriting. I love Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and the Gershwins and Johnny Mercer and Harold Arlen and people like that. I love those records. I love those songs. They are made that it's the, that is amazing songwriting. You know, those people were the Bob Dylans and Neil Young's and whatnot of their day. Those songs were consumed by everyone. I wonder how much money the Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or Harold Arlen catalogues make now in publishing i mean of course they make money because you get cold balls and musicals still happening around the world of course they make money but are they cash cows do they mm. generate the sums that would repay the investments that uh, companies are making in catalogs today i'm not sure they would um i think it's a that's a it's a fascinating time for catalog music uh but i think a lot of people might find themselves out of pocket at the end of it though not the artists and fair enough they've got the payday that's fine. But that's a, that's a very valid point about the great American songbook. And there are people, I, I'm sure The Guardian have done it, the great British songbook. Oh. The Guardian did in 2011 put together a history of modern music. Was that your idea? That wasn't me. That was Casper Llewellyn Smith. Right. Um, that was that was an online thing. Um, at that point, film and music, the old film and music, still existed in print, and I, I was focused on that. Well, I wrote some bits and bobs for that. The biggest album of 1970, Sha Na Na. Well, the best album, of course, Jeffrey Cannon. The best. But, but, you, but then you know, also trends. You know, the Winchester Cathedral was the best-selling British single in the US in 1966, yeah. and who knows Winchester Cathedral now. Very, well, very formative influence on Lieutenant Pigeon. Oh, Lieutenant Pigeon, don't get me started on that. I dare not. Uh, just to wrap up about Denim and Leather, the rise and fall of the new wave of British heavy metal, which is, I think, £20 and is out on Constable, the definitive story of the greatest days of British heavy rock. Have you sent a copy to Peter Mensch? I haven't sent a copy to Peter Mensch, no. <laughs> we are, I, I don't, Peter Mensch, who was the manager of ACDC and Def Leppard, and mentioned by many of my interviewees as kind of the role model for what a hard rock manager should be. Um, I approached him for an interview, and he, he, wrote back, he wrote back in a way that did not say no. They kind of an amused email back. It was not a no. So, oh, okay, that's, you keep on at that. And each time I interviewed someone who mentioned Peter Mensch, I'd send them a note saying, these people talked about you, please talk to me. Until he finally sends a note saying, this is not amusing anymore, leave me alone. Oh, okay. What a heartless... Well, he's a businessman. And again, he's probably... He's he's got a direct line to Mutt Lang, probably. Well, he's a businessman, but also he has nothing to gain from it. So Mm. when I was writing the book, it didn't surprise me that I could get members of Handsome Beasts and, you know, Tykes Pantang and the groups who who did not move on to stardom. It did surprise me that Def Leppard were quite so astoundingly helpful. Um, because Maiden, you know, I couldn't get Steve Hansel or Bruce Dickinson. I got, I got members of Maiden from the time that I was writing about. But Def Leppard, I got in contact with a publicist, said, can I speak to, to them for my book? And he said, yeah, I'll fix up some time. He fixed me up with half an hour each with Joe Elliott, Phil Collin and Rick Savage which clearly was not enough. 
And at the end of each of those interviews, I said to them, is it okay if we do a follow-up? Because I, I do have more I need to ask. And they said, yeah, fine. And to each of them, I said, can we do it by me not having to go to your publicist or go to your manager or go to you, and then you'll go back to your manager or go back to your publicist or come back to me, and then we'll spend another three weeks trying to find out a time that we can do it. And they, all of them went, yeah, sure, here's my phone number, here's my email. Just you know, get in touch and offer me some dates and we'll sort it all out. And so with each of them, I ended up doing um, three interviews, I think, a total of about nine hours, ten hours with the members of Def Leppard. And they were just so incredibly helpful you know at one point i said to rick savage you know why are you so nice you have no need to be nice you have no need to be in this book uh, you know especially as you say you are not norbum and he said well people often ask us that people often ask us why, why, why are you nice to other people we just can't really see the point in being wankers i mean what, what do you gain from it does it make you happy and so i have nothing but time and admiration for Def leopard now a few weeks after i interviewed rick savage I was watching the cricket. So this is summer 2020, and Joe Denley was failing again. And I sent a text to my friend, who is a fan of Kent, for whom Joe Denley plays, pointing out Joe Denley costing him a test match. And I got a text back. It was from Rick Savage saying, I don't think you meant this text for me, but while we're on the subject, can you think of a single honest reason why Johnny Bairstow is not in the top five, apart from people hating Yorkshire? Now... An international rock star gets a mistaken text and rather than ignoring it or deleting it or going, leave me alone, replies engaging with the subject of England's batting order. Oh, I'm here for Def Leppard all day long. Here, here. Uh, Denim and Leather takes its place alongside Meet Me in the Bathroom, the Lizzie Goodman history of that post-punk era that still continues. John Robb's history of uh, punk and whoever wrote that oral history of grunge. I think Michael Azarad. I can't Mark remember. Yarm. Mark Thank Michael Azarad wrote Our Bank Will Be Your Life. Mark Yarm wrote um, This Is Our Town. Thank you. It's always, it's always useful to have the Guardian's film and music editor erstwhile <laughs> on the line. Former. Former. Yes, you're, you're, you're right for the, Well, you're right for everyone. You write some of the FT's Life in a Song pieces, which I love. I love those pieces. I, so well done. I, I, write, I write frequently for the FT, for the Guardian, the Spectator, um, less frequently for the Independent, the Telegraph. Um, I've written for the Times, Quietus, Uncut. So, yeah, anyone will have me. Good connections. And the, you're the Quietus review by a contributor to the book, Keith Kahn Harris, Jewish, like myself, mm. and happy Passover mm. to any Jewish listeners. Mm. He said that you make the genre, which has this flawed charm, lovable. Uh, was that becoming clear as you were writing the book, that they were lovable? I, I, I liked almost all the people I spoke to. There was no one I disliked. Um, there are people I feel slightly guilty about because I don't think they help themselves in the book. Uh, but that's one thing about it all being their words. No one can say, why did you say this about me? I didn't say anything about you. You said it all yourself. Indeed. Um, but, but by and large, I, I thought the people were absolutely delightful. I mean, even the people who I was not in love with as interviewees, they gave me their time willingly, and I'm forever grateful for that. And the, the true heroes of the book, I think, are Tigers of Pantang, who still play. Um, Rob Weir emailed me the other day to say that they are playing at the Black Heart in Camden. Now, this is a band who wow. used to play Hammersmith Odeon, and they're now playing the Black Heart in Camden, which is like uh, 80 people. I'd love to go, it's probably sold out. Uh, he still does it because he loves it. Yeah, he takes time off from his job. Obviously, he's been working, doing a proper job for quite a long time. He takes time off his job to play gigs. There are still young musicians who want to play in Tigers of Pantang, young international musicians. Tigers of Pantang is no longer a Geordie group. 
he does it because he loves it and few people were knocked back as hard by the music industry as Rob Weir who was chucked out of the band he founded by you know members who who'd only joined a year or two before and by the band's booking agent but Rob never gave up and lots of these people never gave up so you can still go around the country and see these bands usually with one original member now playing in a pub somewhere and they're still doing it because they still love it and I, I think that's a beautiful beautiful thing Do you know, I think I've found an idea for a musical and it's, it can be set, actually you could have different musicals, one set in Newcastle, one set in, they, you could actually do a tour um, and this musical, which would be called Denim and Leather, and I'll, I'll talk to you and your agent for the rights for it. <laughs> I tell you what, stop believing, I never started. I loved that review of Rock of Ages. I thought, hang on, he doesn't like it that much. It can't be that bad. God, it was awful. What an awful musical. It's now closed. And did you have to write that piece or were you, did you commission yourself to write that piece? No. The theatre editor asked me to go and review it on the grounds that clearly this was unlikely to be something that Michael Billington yes. was <laughs> going to be uh, feeling at home with. Um, and because it was a rock musical, you know, I nearly took my daughter, who would have been like seven or eight at the time, but then she said, no, I don't want to see that. Thank God I didn't. Because, oh, it was repulsive. I mean, yeah, everyone else in the audience was on their feet cheering by the end, but I thought it was repellent in every way. And also, what baffled me was you know, the notion of this is a straight transplant. Honestly, Sister Christian by Night Ranger did not have traction in the UK. Nope. It is, it is not a song that's going to get everyone on their feet cheering. It's not Don't Stop Believing. We have a, we have a different rock culture. I think that would be in the collected works of Michael Han and do have a look on, on Guardian Online. I wanted to ask you about Prinzhorn Dance School. Do you remember this review? Mm. Oh, yes. Prinzhorn Dance School. No stars or four stars. I really do not know which. Uh, stars invented by Mark Ellen. Well, Prinzhorn Dance School, for the benefit of listeners who do not remember, were, um, maybe they're still going, who knows, but they were an English, you know, kind of post-punk duo, spectacularly stripped down um, to the point of tunelessness, doing these songs about, well, nothing really. There's one that went, Hamworthy Sports and Leisure Centre. Oh, yeah. It's a sports and leisure centre. And one called You Are Tonight, the Space Invaders. five-piece well. soul band. But this album, what was extraordinary about it was it came out on EMI. And it came out on EMI because Prince Hall Dance School had been picked up by James Murphy for DFA. And when EMI, EMI signed um, LSD Sound System, Murphy's terms were, and you put out everything that I put out on DFA through EMI, which strikes me as a spectacularly stupid vanity deal. But not so long afterwards, or maybe six months or so, because so we'd had that review, and I was so fascinated by Prince Hall Dance School, I commissioned Dorian Linsky to write quite a big piece about them. Because um, I genuinely did not know if they were brilliant or appalling. I could not make up my mind. So six months after this, I was speaking to someone at EMI. So, so how, how did Prince Hall do in the end? And they said, oh, um, I did about 50. I said, oh, 50,000. That's, that's not bad. I went, no, 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 no. I said, is, is, is that UK or Europe-wide? Europe-wide. Oh, well, you must be pleased with that. And they went, no, not 50,000. 50. 50. Oh, sold 50 copies across all of Europe. I said, Wow. Well, even with kind of a genuinely intriguing review and a big feature, and they went, yeah, 
No one wanted to hear them. And whatever happened to EMI Records in the next 10 years? Well, you'll have to read Eamon Ford's book <laughs> to find out. Uh, you do get, Michael Han, your music library card, which means you get access to this mind palace, which has every book um, that you could want. Do you want Craig Finn upon it, or do you want someone else? Perhaps Joe McGuinness? Oh, well, the person whose silhouette or photo would go on it would be Joey Ramone, because Joey Ramone is the greatest rock star who ever existed. You see, there's another book, if, you want, if you're so inclined to write one. But, there are so many Ramones books, and the story is so miserable, though. Oh, it's yes, it so is. miserable. Yeah. I would not want to write about... And the Ramones are my favourite group ever, but most of the Ramones' career is awful. The first three albums are incredible. The live album's great. Road to Ruin's good. There are good bits on End of the Century, Pleasant Dreams, Subterranean Jungle. Too Tough to Die is pretty good. I would not recommend anyone buy an album after Too Tough to Die. They're, they're, uh, but they're, they're my favourite. They're my favourite group ever. My absolute favourite group ever. And Joey Ramone had the greatest voice. He looked incredible. It was all wrong. His voice was wrong. He looked wrong. But it was all incredible. A couple of things. I remember Elliot Everett True re- reviewing one of the late period Ramones albums, Brain Drain, maybe, and saying the Ramones only have two things going for them: Joey's incredible songs and Joey's incredible voice. And that was true by that point. Um, the other thing is. I remember interviewing Danny Fields, who was the longtime manager of the Ramones, talking about how in later life, you know, Joey Ramone would go out in New York. Having been completely, no one knew who he was in 76, 77, 78. But in later life, when he becomes a cult hero, you know, he'd go out in New York and people would shout at him, you know, truck drivers would wind down the windows and shout, hey, Joey Ramone! And Danny Fields said, and it was like seeing a fledgling that had finally hatched. Mm. You know, seeing Joey Ramone be loved, which was, which was what he needed. So I thought that was a beautiful thing. That's brilliant. Whereas the the stars of Venom and um, well all the other bands, uh, who my Angel Witch um, and uh, Saxon and Samson, they all have the love. They all do it for the love. And this book is full of love. And uh, yeah. thank you for doing this, Denim and Leather: The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, or the Wobbum as it's known, which was a creation of Alan Lewis, the editor of Sounds magazine. Not Jeff Barton. I don't know why you'd say that. Uh, but best of luck with whichever projects you're hoping to do. Have you kept, is it Bank Holiday Monday free just in case Queen's Park Rangers? Or aren't you, aren't you thinking about that yet? Well, I have a season ticket at QPR, but it's been so miserable uh, since the start of February. But I do not even know what our fixtures are now. Um, uh, hang on. So what we're doing? Oh yes, we got Derby at home on Bank Holiday Monday, which is three. Yes, points. I. Yeah, I will be at Derby at home on Bank Holiday Monday. But no, do you know? Uh, at the start of February, I turned down the appearance at Books Festival. So I said it's going to clash with the playoff semi-finals, and QPR are going to be in the playoff semi-finals. It's non-negotiable. Oh yeah, that's all gone by the by now, hasn't it? Now hey. I look like an idiot. Hey, I'm a Watford fan. We haven't won since I think Ranieri was manager. <laughs> 